From the highest point on Florida State's campus and the hottest room in Seminole sports, this is Tomahawk Talk. We are live on 89.7 FM here in Tallahassee and streaming online at wvfs.fsu.edu. If you want to call into the show, feel free to dial us up at 850-644-3871. And if you happen to miss this week's show or any other future show, you can go back and listen to us on the Tomahawk Talk podcast, streaming anywhere you may listen to your podcasts. I'm your host, Luke Hazen, as always. Proud to join you here on a rather gloomy Monday in Tallahassee, as Tropical Storm Claudette kind of works its way around us here in Florida, but we wish the best to all those that are being affected right now. Sort of a quiet week in the sports world, on the Seminole front at least. Not a whole lot of football news, baseball of course wrapped up, softball of course wrapped up. Although I have to give a quick shout out to the FSU softball team for having Kalen Arnold, Devin Flaherty, Danny Morgan, and Captain Sandercock all make the All-ACC Academic Team. Overall, though, it was quite the weekend in sports outside of Tallahassee, and we're going to get you caught up on everything that you might have missed or just interested in hearing our valued and respected opinions on here first. I have to get to who's joining me in the booth tonight. Joining me in the co-host chair is our producer, Sebastian Angeliano. Sebastian, you just kind of keep working your way up the ladder here the last couple of weeks, going from you know producer to panelist. Now you're here in the co-host chair for, you said, just the second time? Well, guess what? You're next for July 4th, just letting you know. <laughs> nah, I'm just messing. Yeah, this is only my second time in my um, in a co-hosting capacity, I think. The last time I did this was maybe summer 2019. It's a little fuzzy. It's been a very long time, though. So um, I'm just going to try to keep us out of the ditches, you know? Yeah, and can, can you give us a little... I, we might not get it to... A whole lot of NHL talk tonight. You want to give us a recap on on how this weekend went for you as a Lightning fan? Yeah, a bit of a mixed results. I know last week I said I wasn't worried at all because uh, I knew that the Lightning could bounce back from their one-one, uh, uh, sorry, their their loss in Game Two uh, against the New York Islanders, and they did. They bounced back. They have they continue that streak of being able to to rebound after a, a loss in the playoffs. Uh, but right as they got a two-one lead, they were uh, pretty tepid in uh, Game 4 for the first two uh, periods and uh, couldn't really get it together in time in the third period, so the uh, the Islanders held on for a 2-1 win. Series is tied 2-2. Goes back to Tampa tonight, 8 o'clock on the... I think it's NBC. USA still. Is it right? still the USA Network? Man, we can't even get on NBC. Although, I, I will say, I think it was on... USA this week because the U.S. Open was on NBC, so it might change. But honestly, for those that weren't watching on USA over the weekend, that was one of the craziest last-second finishes I've seen in, in, yeah. in Game 4. Yeah, it was a little disappointing. I mean, it's it just shows, once again, you have to play a full 60 minutes if you want to win in, in, in the playoffs, in the Stanley Cup playoffs. Uh, the Lightning very clearly proved in those last 20 minutes that they could have won this game if they just put in the work uh, early on. And instead of just kind of falling asleep into a 3-0 hole. Right, and you you talk about, you know, kind of focusing up the last couple of seconds. Um, you could say the same thing about the, the, the Golden Knights Montreal series going on right now. Just a complete blunder by Vegas giving up that goal in the last couple of seconds. Absolutely. Um, that Vegas series, I mean, it's not the one that's at the center of my attention, obviously. I mean, I do have a, a hometown slant, uh, but either way, whichever team makes it to the Stanley Cup playoffs, I don't know really who you want who you want more, because on one hand, Vegas doesn't get called for anything. Um, no disrespect to the referees, but it, it's just a fact of the matter. Um, the Lightning are not a clean team, but the Lightning have twice as many calls uh, against them in the playoffs than the Knights do in the past two years. It's ridiculous. Um, 
whereas uh, you know Montreal is a team of destiny, as I called them earlier today. Uh, Montreal just cannot be denied. This might be the year where the streak ends for for Canada's drought. It's it's been. I know the last Canadian team to make it to the Stanley Cup was I think Vancouver, Vancouver. against Boston, but yeah. I I can't remember off the top of my head the last time a Canadian team won. I think it might have been... Uh, 94, I want to say. It was actually, guess who? Canadians. The Canadians. <laughs> That's right. Well, Sebastian, we thank you for joining us here tonight. Also helping us out is our other producer, Scott. Scott, how you doing, bud? I'm doing all right. I have not been watching much of the NHL playoffs since my Blackhawks haven't really been in it. But <laughs> I have really gotten into the European soccer tourna- tournament this summer, and I've been, those games have been electric. Uh, Denmark, who has been talked talked about a lot in the news lately because of Christian Christian Eriksen's situation. They were bottom of their group and ended up winning today and won by enough goals to claim that second place spot and a spot in the kind of knockout rounds. And so that game, I think it finished 4-1 in Denmark's favor, was absolutely nuts. And it was a great game to watch. And Yeah, Yeah. well, we thank you for joining us here, Scott. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit of college football later with you. And the ruling that, that came out today from the Supreme Court. But glad to have Scott Clemens joining us, as always, here. A little later on in the show, a former co-host of Tomahawk Talk and a self-proclaimed Atlanta sports masochist, Austin Reynolds, will be set to join us to talk all things NBA. And what was an eventful weekend, to put it mildly, as we get into the conference finals. We'll, we'll talk a little bit later about that. And then wrapping up the star-studded list of guests we have, is former host that was just here a couple weeks ago, and my good friend Gary Putnick, who is going to join us shortly for some uh, some remote location down in South Florida to, to talk a little golf. But we begin with this. So, I want to take you back to a couple weeks ago, about three weeks ago, I want to say. I, of course, was on the show talking about John Rom. And before that, I was in Atlanta when the Memorial Tournament was going on. And I was in Atlanta for a couple of baseball games. Atlanta, Los Angeles, they were playing over the weekend. But my attention wasn't on that because I'm not a Braves fan or a Dodgers fan. Of course, I'll, I'll sit down and I'll watch baseball, as always. I'm, I'm a nut for it. But my attention was on the Memorial Tournament that was going on and what specifically John Ron was doing in that tournament. A three-under round on Thursday, a six-under round on Friday, and an eight-under round on Saturday. And I, my eyes were drawn to it. I could not believe what I was watching. And then I turn away for one second, and I get a text from Brett Rutherford saying, John Rahm has been penalized, and he is no longer allowed to play in the Memorial Tournament because he's tested positive for COVID. Just an insane thing, the likes of, I don't think, I know Justin Turner was uh, tested positive for COVID after the World Series, but I don't think we had seen a, a, a player with the magnitude of John Rahm be uh, discontin- discounted from the tournament for, for testing positive for COVID. Can I just say, it's it's crazy that they, they popped him, right? They popped him in the middle of the tournament, yeah. and it felt like it was just kind of like, no, you're done. There's nothing else you can do. Whereas... Um, Golf notoriously has been the most like distant sport. Like the one sport that you could probably play outside is the one sport that was relatively unaffected by COVID. Once everything was like okay, we can go get up and going. Right, uh, golf was one of the first ones. You couldn't have put him like in basically in his own group and just have him play out, kind of play clean up after everybody else did and let him finish out his round. And instead, you got to deny him over a million dollars. 
That was not. That was that was really uncompromising. Understandably uncompromising because you, if somebody gets popped for that, you want to get them out immediately. But one of the meet them halfway. One of the craziest scenes in golf that we've seen since the return to golf. So imagine, to my surprise, three weeks later, we are here in this booth talking about U.S. Open champion John Rahm. He wins yesterday with a final Sunday score of four under to get to six under. Beating Louis Oosthuizen by one stroke at five under, and and really what is just a fairy tale ending for for John Rahm and the the way that he won birding the last two holes seventeen and eighteen at the place that he won at Torrey Pines where not only has he won there he won his first major championship there now he won his first PGA Tour event there and he also was engaged to his wife Kelly at Torrey Pines just just an absolutely unbelievable weekend for in the, in the world of golf and, and specifically for John Rahm. And so to talk a little bit more about this weekend, I want to bring in Gary right now. I, I know you were just, Gary, if you want to join us right now, I know that you were just as glued into Bryson DeChambeau's back nine forty four as you were John Rahm's winning score of 67. But how you doing, bud? I'm doing great, man. That U.S. Open this past weekend was a ton of fun. I might not like the I might not like Torrey Pines, the South Course as a whole, just because I believe it's kind of an uninspiring piece of land, even though they have this great view of the ocean. But it's set up for a great tournament, nonetheless. Yeah, but well, well, Gary, I want I want to ask you for, first before we get into the golf. How are, how are you doing, bud? Because I know you've taken a couple weeks off since you were you were hosting here. What have you been up to? I've just been hanging around South Florida. We've just been starting to get into the rainy season here, so it's been a lot of rain. Haven't been able to do too much. Played a little bit of golf. Haven't made it to the beach yet, surprisingly, considering I live like five minutes away from it, but just hanging out, watching sports, just like you guys probably. <laughs> yeah. Well, Gary, I want to first start with just, because I know you you probably watched all this week and this weekend, the, the tournament. I just want to get your initial thoughts on on how you thought the tournament went and how how Tory was as a major major championship course. Well, see, everyone loves Tory Pines as a major championship course, a U.S. Open course, solely because of the result that it gave us in 2008 when Tiger and Rocco Mediate went head to head, 19 playoff holes on a Monday, phenomenal there. But like as a whole, the Tory Pines it's pretty boring. It's a municipal course out there in La Jolla, California. It doesn't really offer too much. I mean. You really could, I don't know, it just feels weird because like there's nothing that feels like it's terribly a challenge. But the cool thing that I guess that makes of it is that it becomes a choose-your-own-adventure for a lot of these golfers. Like you saw Bryson always trying to just whale it and try and play it in the rough because he can hit it out of the rough from anywhere. It doesn't matter. And you see other guys trying to play the fairway, play the slants of the greens and all that. So I don't know. I think it's interesting in a way, but still not my favorite course for a U.S. Open. Not at all. I, I think we've, we've kind of got a cup. you know, I, I don't want to be too hard on Torrey because it's an iconic course, to, mm-hmm. to say the least. We've got a, a couple of awesome finishes the last time that it has been a U.S. Open championship destination. But the last two, going back to winged foot where, where Bryson DeChambeau won and then John Rahm winning at Torrey, the last two courses have kind of been you know, wishy-washy in terms of, of, of how much bite they really have, how aesthetically pleasing they are, and, and how challenging they might actually be. The one, well, the one thing that I think Tory did, other uh, that Wingfoot didn't, it did have a couple penalty areas on the left where if you you like absolutely could not miss left, and if you dare go up the left side, you get aggressive if you're fading the ball or something like that, it will penalize you as we saw Louis Oosthuizen do. So I, you know, 
my my overall takeaway with the with the course is you know I I will always love seeing them play there just because of the history that it has there as a U.S. Open course, but I don't think you know any course that we we see on a regular yearly basis isn't going to be you know the best location for it. I'm I'm much more excited to see somewhere in the future like Aaron Hills or Shinnecock or somewhere like that. Exactly. Even like Chambers Bay. Chambers Bay is a great one always as well. But like you spoke about that pen, that penalty area on the left side, that's what Rom was fighting all day. He kept fading the ball. He usually does fade it in the first place, but he never had any left misses off the tee, except that I think it was the only left miss that he had was when he knew he could bomb it left and into that uh, where the TV, I think where the TV trucks were, that fence area, and he was yeah. getting a free drop. Yeah, that that's the one lucky break I think he caught. in this. Uh, I know he had the approach shot on... I think on 14 where he had to get up and down to say, or no, that's right. He missed on uh, on 14, went left mm-hmm. off the tee, got a drop there, and then somehow made his way for, for, for birdie there, I'm pre- or par there, I'm pretty yeah, sure. Yeah, par 14. But speaking of shots like that where, where you know it's the difference between winning and losing, what, what shot or what moment are you going to remember from this tournament? It could be Rom or it could be anyone. What, what stuck out to you? Well, I think the one, for Rom at least, it's got to be the putt on 17. That's the one that kind of kicks it off and lets him have a chance at taking a lead on 18. And that those two putts that he had on 17 and 18 were phenomenal. But other than that one, another big moment that stuck out for Rom was the bunker shot on 18 because if he goes right at that pin, odds are he's going into the water because the way the lie that he had in that bunker was a little bit of a downhill one, and it would have came out pretty hot and low. So... He really played it smart and just taking it, eating, taking his medicine and putting it out to the right side, and maybe playing that slope a little bit. Right. I mean, you know, there, we we can talk all about you know the the iconic shots. The interesting thing about Rom's round yesterday is there really were no huge shots. Like the back nine, it was surgical for him. Like all pars and then bird, to finish birdie, birdie. Though I mean, the way he was hitting it, it was like dare I say it, cat esque, Gary. Like it was it was that mm-hmm. cold blooded. That methodical of of a of a back nine form, it was he was the only one that seemed like he didn't want to lose it. I think that's what's impressive about the sixty seven that he posted is that for literally every single golfer that was in the mix, sixty seven was not an option out there. Exactly, and well, and he had only those two birdies on the back nine, the rest pars on that back half, and it felt like that whole time he was just waiting for the right moment to strike. He wasn't trying to put himself in bad situations and wasn't trying to overextend himself too early or too late, and that's what something that Louis had an issue with. Louis was always kind of trying to press and trying to get an advantage where he had to play defense a few times and ended up putting himself in bad spots like he did it where he had two uh, bogeys on the back half. Right. Speaking of Louis Oosthuizen, though, I, what kind of dark magic is Louis Oosthuizen going to have to summon to get him one of these? Because he hasn't won since 2010. He's completed, I think, one, if not two, trip like grand slams for, for second-place finishes. I think he's done it almost twice now in, in Gary, I'm, it's, it, from a Louis Oosthuizen fan, it's frustrating to say the least. Yeah, it, it's tough to get at because this feels like a place where he might might have had a good chance at, but like I really just can't put a finger on what course and what course layout could really work for him because the way that the game is moving, it's moving so fast for a guy like him. It's tough to keep up. Like he does hit greens in regulation. That's one thing he did pretty good at. I mean, on in the uh, fourth round, he was fourteen of eighteen, so that's really good, but. He wasn't really there in terms of driving distance. He couldn't keep up with the Brysons, John Rahm, even Brooks of the world. So, like, 
it I feel like this game's only going to get further and further away from him. Right, but 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 my point is, you know, as the game gets further and further away, he's still right there. He he's one of those guys that is in the mix every single time. This is the second straight major championship where he's in the final grouping. You know, he was there with Phil, you know, wiltered away at uh at Kiwa and now he he wilters away here. I don't even want to say he wilters away. He gets in at, at a 71 even par. It's really just one mistake that costs him. I I just don't know what to make of it. Um Moving on, though, I you know bring it into to a little FSU talk. What did you think of Brooks's round? I mean, he he looked so good that front nine. That front nine, he was playing phenomenally well. He had it was a a bogey free front nine, three under going into the back half, and then he starts to put himself in, put himself in a lot of bad positions, and especially on that ten through twelve section where things can get a little bit tough. He had a bogey on twelve, and then he was able to get back with two birdies on thirteen and fifteen. But then he fires right back with 16 and 18 bogeys. So, I mean, he he had a lot of chances to make some pushes, but ultimately he just could not get himself in the right spots at the end of the day. Right. Does, does this affect your 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 perception of him at all going forward from major championships? The fact that he's sort of there on, on a Sunday? Not, I mean, he started the day at even, finishes at two under. Is your confidence in him to win another major championship at all You know, fluctuating? As well, I mean, if he can get healthy, I think he's got a better chance. I mean, he put up two under and T4 at when he's not 100%, and I think that's really impressive, and that's that's reassuring because he, I think he's starting to figure out what he needs to do to maybe try and play while hurt and maybe how to do it. And once he gets back to 100%, he's going to be dangerous because he still has the same kind of playing mentality and the same kind of style as he is when he's 100% and hurt. So, I mean, it's crazy to think about that, but... I don't know. I I'm not. I don't think I lost any confidence in his game this weekend. Right. Well, we can't talk about Brooks without talking about the other guy. <laughs> that was one of the most remarkably awful back nines I've ever seen in my life from Bryson DeChambeau. Gary, has he ever looked more relatable to you as a golfer? I mean, I guess, other than the fact that he's a lot heavier than me, I'd say probably no. Or yeah, I would say yes. He looked very relatable in that moment. But yeah, like. He's, ah, gosh, to think that a guy who wears metal spikes and is always worrying about his spikes, you, you think he wouldn't be able to slip on a hole or tee box like he did. Right. That was ba- that was mind-boggling for me. Yeah, credit to Shane Bacon. He was saying that those those guys were slipping throughout the day on the thirteenth on the thirteenth hole, but it's got to affect not affect him, but it's got to affect the the way that we perceive him though. To be at five under, leading the tournament at the turn. And then to fire off a 44, do you think the streaker had anything to do with it, or, or what? What happened down the stretch there for him? That's what I was just about to ask you. That streaker <laughs> on 13, I guess, played a huge role in this one because that's where the bogeys start to kick off for him. That's where all the trouble comes from. But I don't know because once he, ha- so I told my dad before the round started on, uh, before the leaders kind of went off, I was like, the three guys that really have a chance: Brooks, Bryson. At Louis, or Brooks, Price, and Louis and Rom. Those are the four guys that legitimately can win this thing as of right now. No Mackenzie and Hughes? No Mackenzie Hughes. <laughs> no, no, I'm not taking Mackenzie Hughes, man. I'm sorry. I can't buy into him. I, I was about to say before. But, um, yeah. What? You go continue, continue. Yeah. So, uh, one, like when I thought this, I thought it was over when Bryson almost had a hole in one on the eighth hole. He came in within an inch of holing out on the par three eighth and I was like oh great here we go Bryson's gonna win this thing this one's over 
Yeah, it's it's just you know, especially after last year's U.S. Open, him finally solidifying the fact that he you can win a major playing the way that he does. Uh, I you know a forty four it's it's you really can't make anything. I mean, it's it's tough because at times he rattles off a five. You know, he gets to five under and he's putting it right near the hole, and then on the back nine he shoots a forty four. It's he's the he's the most puzzling and I think the most entertaining golfer in the sport that we have right now, which is why I can never be anti-Team Bryson, you know? Yeah, I see, I'm anti-Team Bryson, but I love I love watching it because it's just hilarious to watch and also sometimes amazing to watch and how well he can hit the ball. But it's really more or less that I don't like his personality than his game because I really do think the single-length irons, it's a great idea. Single-length clubs are a great idea to help a lot of golfers, but... I yeah, it's just his attitude that kind of rubs me the wrong way. Yeah, uh, Gary, Sebastian's got a question for you here. Yeah, hey Gary. Yeah, what's up? Um, I do want to ask because it was the main like overarching you know story coming into um, this year's U.S. Open. It's it's the tournament that has notoriously escaped Phil Mickelson. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I mean, what what happened to him this weekend? Was he ever you know within arm's length of the? Was he ever close? I know this is supposed to be his quote unquote home. Uh, Home course, you know, growing <laughs> up, he played this thing all the time. But uh, I didn't hear a ton of um, airtime devoted to him over the weekend, so I just want to know what happened, really. I mean, he really, he started off pretty well. I mean, he actually, no, he started off pretty poorly on the Thursday. He went four over, bounced back with a two under on the next day. And then on Saturday and Sunday, he just couldn't get it all together. He couldn't keep the momentum going from that Friday round. But uh, one thing that he did say, I was watching his press conferences from earlier in the week uh, before the tournament started. He was saying, because this this course has actually gone under some renovations, the greens have been tweaked a little bit. And so the USGA obviously likes to make it firm and fast when it comes to the greens in this turn and U.S. Opens. And so he had to come out here and he said he spent hours the previous week on the greens trying to relearn them all because they were completely different from when he was playing them in high school and, and a little bit in college. So it's it's kind of tough, but yeah, the U.S. Open, I think it's going to continue to elude him. I don't, I don't know if he's ever going to get that grand slam. I, all right. Well, that was going to be my, my follow-up question. Is this kind of his, his last shot to, to get this grand slam, and do you think he has more in the tank at age 51? See, I don't, I don't know if he, this could be his last chance because I was at the next U.S. Open is going to be at the Country Club in Brookline, Massachusetts next year. I really know nothing about that course yet because I haven't I've yet to really take a look at it. But this one may have been one of his better chances to try and get after it just due to his not, his new style of play, which is more like a Bryson style when it comes to bomb and gouge. Right. I, you know, I, I think talking a little bit more about Phil, I don't know, you know, based on his attitude after winning the PJ, I don't know that it's it's really you know, pressing on him that much to, to go out and win that. He seems pretty content with with being fine with winning the PGA at 51. Yeah, I, it feels like he's a little bit at peace with it all. Obviously, he'd like to have some of those chances back from past U.S. Opens, but I think he's kind of come to terms with the passes in the past, and he's got to live it up in the moment while he can. Right. Can we also talk about how great of a moment that was after, not after the, the round, but when Ron was warming up on the range, waiting for a playoff, and and you see Phil and Kelly talking there, and then Phil kind of get in. I think I honestly think that Phil, more than anything else, was kind of positioning himself for some camera time, congratulating John right after. 
I was shocked to see Phil sitting right there. I was, I didn't believe it. I was like, what the heck is Phil sitting over next to John Rahm's wife and child? Like, but yeah, it's always Phil wanting to be in the camera. He's trying to get in on some of that uh, PIP money. <laughs> <laughs> well, going back to 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 Rom to kind of round out what was an incredible weekend for him. Uh, where will you treat this U.S. Open, especially with with what happened at the Memorial and the way that he was so genuine in his comments afterwards, in in self reflecting on on what happened at at Mirfield and sort of taking that situation and being very reflective and and being very sorry for what he did and then coming here and winning just a couple weeks later uh where does this tournament in your like among other u.s opens where does this one land for you i think this is a great one obviously it's kind of tough to compare a lot of u.s opens we've had a few duds in the past and all that but this one's been a great one i mean it it really showed up with the leaderboard, just the amount of fun that had watching, although we may have had way too many commercials throughout the whole week and weekend when it comes to watching these tournaments. But, like, it was just a ton of fun when it came to the leaderboard, the play, the kind of the the way that the players acted around the whole tournament. It was a ton of fun. I'm, I think the only thing that would have made it better was a uh, Brooks-Bryson matchup on the weekend. <laughs> well, we, we sort of got that with, with Bryson cutting into to Brooks's camera with jumping up and down there. <laughs> acting like a fool but um kind of moving ahead looking forward to the what is I guess the last major of the season at Royal St. George the Open um in your eyes should should Rom be the favorite heading into this or or who do you sort of have your eyes on I'd still probably give Rom the favorite just because this course was Royal St. George it's in the southeast of England I believe it's in Sandwich and so uh, it's going to be playing a lot more like the courses that John Rom's grown up playing so I mean he'll understand it a little bit better and I, I would put Rom as the favorite right now. DJ is just not playing well enough to really give uh, me a chance, a reason to believe. And R- I mean, Rory might have a chance. I I don't want to do this. I don't like getting oh, high on Rory like this this or this this uh, long before a major. But I don't know. Rory's game is trending in the right direction. Absolutely. I, I didn't think he had a bad round. The only reason I'm not, I'm never picking Rory to win another Open is because I woke up bleary-eyed at, at 6 a.m. or what, whatever it was to, to see him the favorite win a couple years ago, only to post an 8 on the opening hole. I, I got PTSD from that. I will never pick Rory to win ever again there. But kind of wrapping things up in the first half here, talking with Gary Putnick about the U.S. Open champion, John Rom. I want to put you on the spot. How many majors does Rom get to now that he's won his first? Mm, in his career, I... I think John's going to get uh, over under four. Ma- oh, I, you said three. What over? I got three majors. The one problem is like right now with golf, it's so competitive. There's so many good players, top to bottom. You got I me, mean, and all the young guys coming up too, like Matt Wolf, Colin Morikawa. You still have Brooks still hunting for majors. DJ. I mean, there's so many guys left and right, up and down a leaderboard, where there's a lot of chances out there for these guys, and it becomes a lot more difficult when it's really. Because before, you, it was really just Tiger, Phil, and then a couple other guys here and there. So it became really a lot easier to win a major when you only had to beat really two guys before. And now it now feels like 10, honestly. Yeah. I, I, I think you get, you know, now that he's won, it feels like it's it was inevitable, him winning his first. It was just a mm-hmm. matter of where it was going to come. I'm glad it came with the U.S. Open where he's had a couple yeah. of meltdowns over the years. He's really turned himself around, and he's obviously one of my favorite golfers to watch if, if you haven't been – Pay attention to how I talk about him here on the show, but <laughs> Gary, it's been an honor see, talking to you again, talking some golf. I'm, we miss we miss having you here. 
But um, anything headed your way in the future? Um, I don't know. I'm just still on the job searching right <laughs> now and hoping to get some interviews here and there when it comes to applying for places. But yeah, so just going to be hanging out in South Florida until then. So if you guys are in the area, let me know. Yeah, no problem. Well, from from Sebastian and I here, we wish you all the best and uh, good luck. Thank you, guys. You too. See you later. Speed, Gary. All right. All right. Well, that is going to wrap up the first half here as we we wrapped up our, our U.S. Open talk with Gary Putnick. We'll be right back after this short break here on Tomahawk Talk on WVFS Tallahassee, the voice of Florida State. 